0: blenders and welcome welcome to episode number 103 of Real Blend a podcast that interviewed Jim Carrey but didn't ask him about bathroom blend that is a oh. missed opportunity kids Two opportunities yeah. we had to talk to him about that. Gabe bled. didn't
1: give us permission. You know we don't do anything on this show without Gabe's permission. I know. It's very true. Well, on today's
0: show, Gabe gave us permission to talk about the DGAs, which took place this past weekend, and we have a, a winner that might be carving out the Oscars. The Rhythm Section, starring Blake Lively and Jude Law, is out this week, and we sat down and had a conversation with the director, Reed Morano, which we're going to bring to you later on in the show. First, let me introduce the guys, and I'm starting with... Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. because Woo! specifically he's rocking a sweet Justice League hat uh, that he saw I purchased and then he he got it too and he's he wears it better than I do. Hello, Kevin. How are you?
2: Can I? Okay. Well, good, good afternoon to you, Sean. Good afternoon, Jake. Yes. Gabe. How are you? Um. One thing I will say, I, I wear a lot of uh, flat brim hats. I can't do like the the rounded hat. This hat was only fifteen bucks. I'm not doing an ad or right. anything for them, but. I can't believe the quality of this thing. I've bought hats that were $50 that, are, that fall apart, that don't work. This thing is like legit. And also, and f- people who have, don't know what we're talking about, you can go to Sean's Twitter. Uh, I'm sure he's mm. posted about it. But it has all I the have. cool Justice League character logos. It's actually a legitimately awesome hat. My, I have a question. Hat, what is it? What does it mean when a hat doesn't work? Like like sometimes the, if the brim isn't made well, <laughs> it will start bending. Uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Or like, it, some hats just don't. Eventually fit right after a couple times you wear them. This thing has been pretty sturdy. I it's like pretty it. solid.
0: Well, yeah. the hatless wonder up there, and why? Because he has award-winning hair, Jake Hamilton.
1: <laughs> why would of, Why would you cover this up, sir? Exactly.
0: Exactly. Unless it's
1: with an Astros hat, which is the only thing we see him wear. Of, not uh, anymore. Fox
0: in Chicago. Wait, are you uh, now protesting the Astros?
1: I'm not protesting the Astros. It's just you know, it's um. It Heard. <laughs> It's a little harder to wear my 2017 World Series championship gear. I'll tell you uh, that. Um, no, I, I will. Uh, one, it's not baseball season. Um, so right now I'm rocking my uh, my rocket stuff. Um, well, but uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll continue to wear my Astro stuff because there are a lot
2: hear- of Astros players that didn't cheat. Jake, and, did you happen to hear about the movie they're making about the Astros scandal? It's called man. Bad Astros. I'm, I'm like super excited about seeing what they do with it. I think <laughs> it'll be a really good. And then Brad Pitt's coming back. And that's what he was searching for on that planet where Tommy Lee Jones was. He was searching for the reason why the Astros did this. So I'm looking forward to that sequel.
1: It's actually really good. All right, let's move on. I feel so bad for Lauren. Let's (laughs) move on to the (laughs) weekly poll.
0: Uh, We posted this one a little bit late because I forgot on Friday, and Gabe saved me by posting the most anticipated movie coming out in February. Now, February, we tend to have um, a blockbuster that carries us through. In past years, it was Deadpool or Black Panther. Birds of Prey uh, is going to be coming out in a couple of days. Uh, Jake and I will tease uh, going to London, or actually me being in London, for the Birds of Prey Junket later on this week. Uh, 57% of the people who voted in this week's poll went with Birds of Prey. The follow-up to that, 23% went with The Invisible Man. Uh, 14% went to Sonic the Hedgehog, which the guys will be able to speak to in a moment. And 4% went to the Harrison Ford phones it in for a paycheck movie, The Call of the Wild. Um, I'm starting to see some trailers for that. It looks fine. I like dog movies. Uh, I, I'll probably go check it out. I did get an invitation to a press screening. Um, but everyone seems pretty fired up for the new DC film. Kevin,
2: by the way. Uh, and this is something yeah. i I found interesting. Um, when that's, when we'll get into Sonic eventually, when we get into the reviews of it down the line, when it comes out February 14th. But I think Jake and I were having this discussion and I think that movie's going to be big. Like, I think it, it's I, tracking I it like 40 film, to
1: 45 right now.
2: like, like, I think what happened with that film, and I think it's actually interesting and we can get into it later, but the redesign of Sonic and the pushback from November, obviously, to two, uh, to February, that redesign may have been the most brilliant thing they could have done for it. Like, it's, it's almost gained so much traction, I think, from that. I think... But that's one of those things where I question how many people
1: outside of the film world really know that that happened. Like, like that was kind I really of a big story. That, like, we, to us, it was, but, like, I don't yeah. think... The average person like if I went into the streets of Chicago and asked 100 people, hey, do you know what happened with the animation of Sonic? I bet I bet fewer than half. No.
0: Yeah, I don't. And and I think it's more just the uh, family aspect of it. Like I I forget if Jim Carrey said it in your interview or in Kevin's interview, I think it was in Kevin's where he said the people who grew up playing Sonic are older now. So it, it skews the families. It has to sort of lure in that audience, but it also wants to satisfy older people who played the game back in the day. So I don't know. We'll get to the review on it later. You guys can tell me in what aspect it worked. But um I'm I'm curious to see how it plays. Uh, the competition in February, as we can like I said, see. Like
1: initial tracking, and, and lately tracking has been way off for a lot of movies, so take this with a grain of salt, but initial tracking for Sonic... Is uh, forty to forty five, and it's currently January twenty eighth right now. So timestamp this; it comes out February fourteenth. So we'll see what it ends up doing. But kids' movies are always tough because it's it's hard to gauge. Because right now, kids are telling their parents that they want to go see this, but they're not necessarily talking about it on Twitter. So we don't. You know, it's hard to gauge really what the demand for this movie is until
2: opening weekend comes.
0: They're not talking about it on the Twitter.
2: On the Twitter. One thing about Sonic, though, that I find interesting is that, and we will get into this later, but I think that story did put that movie on the map for more people. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying people know about the redesign or what the CGI fix was, but I think it put that movie on the map for people, I think. That's
0: well, we're waiting to see what movie is going to finally knock Bad Boys for Life out of the top spot at the box office, and I think the combination of uh, Blake Lively in a gritty spy thriller might be the one to finally do it. The rhythm section opens this week. We will uh, have a conversation about the movie a little bit later in this episode, I believe, Gabe, because it's in the new in movies. Yes, he's giving me the thumbs up. But before we get to that, um, Kevin and I were able to sit down with Reed Murano, the director who also is an accomplished cinematographer, uh, had an amazing conversation about putting uh, together this film, working with Blake Lively, Uh, some of her shot choices. There's a Warner in this film, which is unbelievably cool, and she gave us details on it. This is a spoiler-free conversation, so you can feel free to dive in. Uh, We talk about some specific scenes, but it's nothing that's going to give away anything in the film. In a way, it might even set up uh, things that you can look out for uh, when you are going to the theater. So um, without further ado, I want to throw it right to our conversation with the director of the rhythm section, Reed Morano. Guys, we are so thrilled to be joined with the director of the Rhythm Section, Reed Morano. Hi, Reed. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. Thank you very much. How about you?
0: I'm great. Um, We're so excited to be able to talk to you about this film. It's such a departure, um, not just for things that you worked on, but especially for Blake. Um, I'm so curious because of Stephanie's journey. It goes into so many different places that you wouldn't expect from where you first meet her, uh, from where she begins to where she ends. And as a director, I would think that you'd have to really want to connect with Uh, part of that journey so I'm curious which part of Stephanie what aspect of Stephanie did you most uh, connect with and really want to explore
3: well I mean I like the concept of a character that goes from rock bottom and kind of like lifts herself up and finds meaning finds something to fight for you know and it, it you know experiencing the I've never experienced anything one iota close to what Stephanie goes through in this film um but you know just having like lost a parent when I was uh, the same age, you know, around the same age as the character. Um, And, you know, being sick, I got, you know, I had had cancer for a few years and, you know, just those kinds of things take you to dark places. And what I love is that she uses that and, you know, exploring that moment in your life where you feel like nothing you do has any ramifications and you're just like... (sighs) like you just don't care anymore and exploring that psychologically and also trying to put the audience into her shoes. Those are the the things I thought were interesting to talk about. And also just, you know, being a, you know, the humanity in attempting to do something like this, people who are assassins or who are in the military, people who actually, you know, on their day-to-day job, it's like they may have to actually take a life. It's not easy. There is, I know many people who have gone through this and have PTSD and um, it's really important to note that like, you know, most of the time in movies, when we see this it's just people are killing people with reckless abandon. There's no ramifications and this is different. And I wanted to be able to explore the other side of it, which is the truth of it, mm-hmm. which is, it's really hard. You can't, it's very hard to live with.
0: Absolutely.
2: You know, Reed, you have such an amazing path to becoming a filmmaker, and I and you've always been a filmmaker. But it, it, the the jobs you've done on a set have been different throughout the years. You talk, you start as a cinematographer. Uh, you then do some of your films that you direct and also are the cinematographer for, and then this one you bring in Sean Bobbitt, who's an amazing cinematographer as well, to shoot your film. What is the what is your role like as a director on a set when you when you are not the DP? Um, do you still check the shots? Do you still <laughs> help with the setup at all? I know Sean's brilliant at what he does, but I can't imagine what's it like for you as a director, becoming from a cinematography background. To not be the DP on the movie Well
3: for, for, for one thing I get to go to the bathroom
2: <laughs> uh, <coughs> And
3: um, I am a little less meticulous Because I get to work with people like Sean Bobbitt Or Colin Watkinson And um, Sean you know, it's like people who are idols to me. So, so, you know, to be able to work alongside someone who does what you do and you can kind of finish each other's sentences, which is, is basically what I've become with them. It's like, there's a great sense of freedom where I know he's got this if I'm not there and, you know, vice versa. I've also thinking that way. I can't dial that part of my brain out. So when I Pick locations and things. I'm, I'm picking them as not just as the director, not just as a storyteller, but like, but also from the technical standpoint of like, I already know which direction the scene is going to play out. And, and you know, it takes it, Sean uh, is is a genius, and he's egoless, and I've never met a better handheld operator and. Um, you know, his naturalistic style. It's just like I worshipped him for years and we had sort of collaborated previously when I shot some uh, additional footage for him on Place Beyond the Pines. But to have one of my greatest idols say he believes in me and wants to help me execute my vision is just like, whoa, I get to learn from him. But it was a reciprocal relationship. And, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting and is very telling about Sean is that he, uh, his crew told me they, he's never ever let anyone operate the camera on his sets ever, not even the operator. He always does it, et cetera, et cetera. And I operated um, a bunch of scenes in the movie um, and they, you know, his crew was like, he's just... He loves watching you. He loves oh, watching you operate. And we just awesome. have this relationship of like family and like, you know, uh, have somebody to have someone like Sean who has my back and gets to be, he can be a bad cop. He's like, you can be good cop. I'll be bad cop. And it just is amazing. And he's just <laughs> his eye is obviously he's Sean Bobbitt. So enough said. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh,
0: I will say this as the utmost yeah. compliment um, to some of our listeners who haven't yet got a chance to go see this film and, and why you should go see it. Uh, there were so many moments in the film where I was begging you to just cut away to a wide, (laughs) like, please just give me a breath. (laughs) I just need to sort of catch up, but you want to plunge us into, into Stephanie's path, right? Like she's on this path and, um, and no more did that happen than plotting out that amazing car chase scene, uh, in Tangier, which never (sighs) doesn't leave the passenger side seat of this car, uh, as she's speeding away. I don't want to Give away too many spoilers. It's a wonderful scene for you to uh, appreciate as you're going through it. But can you just talk a little bit about the decisions that you made to get to that point? Was it fun plotting that sequence out?
3: Oh, it was so fun. It was it was really like amazing. Everybody got super excited about it. Um, when I first read the script, there was a line. Um, that Mark Burnell had written in the script about Stephanie driving through an intersection and shutting her eyes before she drives through it, just cause she just is like, I don't know, just hope it's gonna be okay. <laughs> and I was just like, that's it. That's the key to the scene. And you know, my my whole sort of approach when I went in and talked to Barbara, but was like, okay, everything's from her perspective. We don't see anything she doesn't see. And to that end, it only made sense that the camera would stay in the car with her the whole time. Further to that, I studied all the great car chases, and I just realized every time that we cut out of the car, I the tension went away, and I got less afraid, um, and I was like, I don't want that to happen here, right. so I want to stay, and it took a ton of like brilliant choreography, by Sean Bobbitt and Lee Morrison and Chris Corbold and Olivia Schneider the stunt team with Sean Bobbitt in order to execute this and he was handheld in the car and they rebuilt the car different ways and and also to carry a scene like that and keep you in the moment it's like you know it's all Blake Blake is just like you know she is all over the map in that scene because she's just reacting as she would, but she is so fun to watch. And I find myself freaking out in the scene and also laughing at moments. And like, you're just like, it's so fun. It's like being on a ride. Yeah,
0: it is great. It really turned out perfectly.
2: You know, Reed, uh, one thing I love about the the title of the film is this concept of, uh, you know, Jude Law, they're talking about this idea that you know, the heart is the drums, the breathing is the bass in regards to the rhythm section. Um, this, might, this is like kind of a, just a, a question that I thought would be interesting to think about. What would you say is the biggest difference between the rhythm section of a director and the rhythm section of a, of a cinematographer? Like where, where, where would you place those 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 metaphors and those ideas in regards to those two types of jobs?
3: <laughs> I would say cinematographer, you've really got to find your rhythm section. When you're in a scene and you feel like you have to sneeze or the characters are being really funny and you don't want to laugh in your hand. I'm just thinking about handheld operating, yeah. that kind of thing. Maybe with a director, you have to find your rhythm section when, uh, you know, you're getting when you're in your previews and people are screening the movie and everybody's uh, giving commentary, they're expected to give critical commentary. (laughs) So I think that's actually a really good point uh, in time where a director needs to use their rhythm section to just kind of like... You know, it's going to be okay. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers the question the way you want, but.
0: Um, I want to stay on the topic of music for a little bit. Obviously, you work with Hans Zimmer on this film, um, and there are multiple times throughout the film where you are choreographing your fights uh, to music very specifically. And I want you to talk about just using music to amplify some of your fight sequences, especially during Stephanie's early training, are so brutal that, again, I was just kind of like, Stop! Stop! Just you know, just leave her alone. But I know she has to go through that. Um, but the music almost helped. It almost helped me kind of understand where you were coming from.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's a huge credit to Hans um, and his team. You know, headed up by Steve Mazzaro, they we did. You know, Blake and I would play music before scenes. There were many times where you know, while we were doing the car chase. I would have headphones in. I would give the headphones to Blake and give them to the stunt coordinator. Everybody was like utilizing music. But this music that Hans did came later. And he really looks at the movie holistically. He's not looking at it like we need a scary cue here. We need a. Th-. He's thinking about the emotion. Now. He's thinking about the emotionality of the scene. He's thinking about like you know, I always like music also that contrasts with what's happening in a scene, so I always like to play against if there's violence. I appreciate that when filmmakers do it, and so I do think it's a way to sort of subvert expectations, but also like, make people understand, you know, for example, that early on early on, there's a fight sequence between her between um, Blake's character and Jude Law's character, and he's training her, and she's at, she wants that and she goes full force and then, you know, she kind of you know, she she proves herself and, you know, it's not going to all go right. That was part of the other thing is we really wanted this to be realistic. And for somebody to instantaneously be like an amazing fighter, it's like that's believable. Mm-hmm. So we wanted the believable version. And basically, you know, what's great about what Hans did with the music is he was able to sort of capture the spirit of the locations we were in, but also play against uh the scene a little bit in a way that I think is you know it makes it even more fun to watch
2: he's a genius he is on our show we do a lot of different topics each week. um one of the topics we did recently was our favorite shot in a movie of all time we were just we were just all going through what our favorite scenes were our favorite shots from our favorite director of photography um I know this is like might be a loaded question, but do you have a particular Favorite shot in film history that that you that is your go to the shot that maybe just inspired you to become a director of photography or is, is there one shot you can go to? Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's one shot that inspired me to become a director of photography. However, I will tell you the sh- the, mo- the sequence I was watching when I started to become aware that the camera and lens choice would could affect the, um, how you feel in a story. And this was very young, uh, I was watching Raising Arizona, um, and I realized that was when I first understood that, Len, like I first became conscious of the fact that where you place the camera and the field of view could affect how funny or humorous or how in or out of a scene you are. Mm. And this was early on and I, I thought, I actually became aware of it. And that's actually a big thing, I think, for a person who's not in the film industry at all, who's a young kid who has no one they know in the film industry, isn't even aware that cinematography is a job. So um, raising Arizona was sort of a big thing for me when I was young because I was like, this is weird. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at the shot. Kind of, you know, Right, right. Um, and maybe that's, you know, if I thought a little harder, I could point to. I mean, there's a million amazing shots that I love. Mm-hmm. But um, last one I will say is the oh, end of um, The Passenger, uh, the Antonioni film. Oh, wow. Nice. That whole end shot is a really, really, really long shot that was very complex for them to do at that time with like a old school kind of cable cam situation. Where it finds uh, Jack Nicholson inside the hotel room, yeah. dead, et cetera, et cetera. Right, yeah, right. it's a great shot. Wait, I'm
0: going to pull one out of your film then, too. And this isn't very spoilery, but how often, how many times did you make Blake walk into the freezing cold water? as <laughs> you pulled back very slowly. Only once. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible that her performance well, is unbelievable. Yeah.
3: Her performance—I mean, it's a credit. So it's a huge credit to Blake. I mean, she just would go right into that water. She kind of threw us for a loop too by dunking down into it and everything. Like she just goes for it. She goes full on. And actually, when she right—and also then like you know, Sean had this crazy crane shot going, and so we had, you know, we had this great team with like Jem Morton our grip and Sean Bobbitt and everybody was getting a shot exactly right and Blake just fully committed and as soon as she got out of the, the, the water she's like did you get it did you get the shot I can go back in again I was like you are not going back in again trust me I didn't hire your Sean Bobbitt for no reason okay like we got the shot that's
2: amazing you know Reed so. uh, one of the things I love about your films and the way you the way you've decided to shoot movies and the way Sean shoots this movie as well is it, it, it feels in You're right there with the characters. It's very you're in their space uh, personally. Um, And I was just curious if you could talk about space as a cinematographer. Uh, Shots you choose deciding to be super close up on Blake as she's going through something emotional. Uh, How much does space factor into the way you shoot a sequence and how you want us to feel as an audience? Because I would imagine as you get closer to an actor's face like that. You're the, the cinematographer, who also plays a leading character in the film, and as is the composer and as is the director, they're trying to tell you something. I'm just curious, what space means to you?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, there was some. I, I think it was something I grew into and learned over time. But you know, starting out as a cinematographer, you kind of like, and also, you know, cinematography goes through. There are trends in filmmaking. Visual styles and there are trends. I think you could see uh, that happen. But when I was younger, I remember it was always like, "Okay, let's put the long lens on to get the close up. Well, the longer lens you put, the further the camera is physically away from the actor. Mm. And I think for some filmmakers, that means something. And at a time, it meant something to me. But then later what I realized and I had to just like learn this like organically, like a baby learning how to walk. It was sort of like, oh, If I can, if a kid, you know, I can go physically closer to the character Mm. and actually use a wider lens to get closer to them and have a, you know, um, intimacy with them. There's nothing between us. There's not all these layers of glass. And for me, it just made me feel like emotionally I was in the character's personal space as opposed to observing them from afar. Mm. That's interesting.
0: Well, it requires a really brave performance. And you actually have one in your leading lady. I mean, she takes. She's incredible. Yeah. Takes us, uh, you know, as an audience to places that I never anticipated going with this film. And I know we're running out of time with you. And so I'm going to just say goodbye. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We hope to get you back um, sometime soon with your next film.
3: I'd love to. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Kevin.
0: Thank you so much, Reed Murano, for joining the Real Blend podcast. She was really great to speak to. Um, it was kind of a, a hurried morning, uh, and she really went out of her way to make time for us because uh, she w- she knew she wanted to come on this podcast, talk about filmmaking. Uh, we're really establishing this show as a place for directors to come and talk about their craft while they're doing the junket circuit. And uh, we were really pushing hard to get her on because she's, uh, she's done some really great films in the past, worked with some amazing directors, and is turning into a fantastic director herself. So I'm glad. Thank you, Paramount for pushing to get her on the Rublin podcast.
2: Yeah, she's she's really an extremely talented cinematographer. And, I, and I, I love that she had that background prior to directing and Sean Bobbitt, as we mentioned in the, in the in the interview, he's the one that's the DP on this film. But I like that she still camera operated some of the shots. Uh, and what I found fascinating the most to me was that Sean Bobbitt never lets anybody go on his camera work except he let Reed do that. So uh, if you haven't seen her work, go back and check out Frozen River. That was one of the first movies she shot. Uh, She's a great DP uh, and she's really becoming a great director. And I I can't wait to see, I'm seeing rhythm section tonight, so we'll get into that in our movies of the week, but I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Awesome. Um, All right, we're going to move on to talking points and we're going to talk about the fact that one of the last dominoes to fall that we were all paying attention to in terms of which way the Oscar race might go because Parasite ends up winning the Screen Actors Guild, which was a huge win for it um, at, at the uh, Critics' Choice Awards, a, a nomination or an organization that we all vote for. We ended up giving Once Upon a Time in Hollywood our best picture. At the Globes, uh, it went to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 1917. And when Parasite won Screen Actors Guild, the three of us were kind of saying, boy, if Bong Joon-ho is able to take DGA... That might cement it. Instead, it ends up going in the direction that you know Kevin's been sort of calling this whole time. It's feeling a little bit inevitable at this point. Nineteen Seventeen wins DGA. In addition, Deacons wins uh, ASC. So I'm um, starting to pick up the the important trophies that are to you know to me indicating that uh, that on Oscar night that those are going to be the the names that are called. And as I mentioned before, I'm okay with it. I, I'm okay with Nineteen Seventeen winning. I think it's uh, I think it's an excellent film. I could totally see why the Academy is getting behind it. Do you guys think that those wins uh, are the nail in the coffin of a of a suspenseful Academy uh, telecast?
1: I don't necessarily think so. I mean, if, I mean, it, I, I definitely think we're going to see a split uh, Best Picture, Best Director uh, Oscars this year. Um, but if this has been really kind of the most up in the air oscars in a while i mean i can't remember one where it's really because i hey, mean jason reitman directing the,
2: the oscars yeah hey well, <laughs> that
1: was good. it's um, on fire today yeah i i, I don't know i am really curious to see what happens i mean 1917 seems like a director's film and i can't help but feel like the you know with the, with the actors who make up obviously a majority of part um, the majority of the the voting body that they're going to want to make history this year
2: I it's so interesting right I mean like it's so, one of my favorite moments on our podcast uh, we've done it in a while I think there was like an episode a couple weeks ago where Sean and I and Jake were arguing about 1917 and I'm like just telling reasons why I don't think 1917 will win and then Sean goes all right but what's gonna win best picture I'm like 1917 <laughs> it was like this like <laughs> abrupt thing because it just it, it, it is the movie that I genuinely think will win because it's the movie that most people will, Equally like what's what's interesting. We have a lot of discussions in the show sometimes about what the winner is going to be and whether or not there's going to be a split vote that will then allow another winner to happen. Right. So if two movies are front runners like Parasite in 1917, do those votes split and then go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Does the split vote thing even matter anymore with the preferential ballot? Because at, the, at this point, a split vote would mean that the the movie that got the most votes would be would be would be the winner correct that that's the way I think the oscars should handle this whatever movie gets right. the most votes wins best picture but because of the preferential ballot it ends up being the movie that everyone equally likes so i think 1917 fits right into that mold of exactly what a best picture means now with the preferential ballot question to you about be- director and and picture it's funny because jake thinks there's still going to be a split and i'm going back and forth with DGA, I need to look up the numbers. I know the statistics are pretty staggering when you look at DGA to director over the <laughs> but years. But this
1: this year has been a statistics breaker, man. Like there, yeah. there's no movie that fits uh, yeah. that that sort of path of the of the stats that that past few uh, few years have followed.
2: Is Hollywood
1: done in those two categories? I, f- I feel like it might end up doing supporting actor and screenplay, man. I, I feel like I that just, might be it. I'm just which uh, is uh, which I'm is like, a very similar path that past that other of his other films of his have uh, well, taken.
0: i was just gonna say I don't like a split. I, I, I think Neither if, if I. you're if you're the best picture of the year, yeah. you, you should also Agreed. be the best director. And and how do you reward a director, best director, but then you don't give their film, especially this, this year where I think whoever they decide to, to go with for director. And honestly, you could honestly tell me any of the five. And yes, I'm including Todd Phillips in that. If you nominate any of those five, then I want those movies that they're nominated for to win. Because they are director signature films. Like, yeah, well, uh, don't don't give it a Tarantino, but then be like, yeah, he's the best director this year. But but once upon a time in Hollywood wasn't a good enough film. Like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't understand a split
2: this year. So I think the problem with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that it what you know. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had a very interesting review cycle I think people were at least like for me personally when I walked out of it I liked it a lot but I wasn't blown away until you know my second third viewings and now I think it's an absolute masterpiece because I've watched it multiple times Hollywood I think is is too almost out there of a film to be equally loved by the Academy um Quentin's movies have never really really kind of hit that barrier right I mean like his movies are odd enough where they don't hit every person 1917 has that ability to hit everybody it's a story everybody can follow it's it's very easily told it's very easily it's I mean and I say this I know you guys are going to take this in a negative way but Sam Mendes just kind of helps the audience through the movie I mean unlike a Nolan or like a Dunkirk where like you have to have to work you know a little bit as an as an audience member um but I do feel like with 1917 the reason why I feel this film is gonna win is because of all these exact reasons. It just doesn't have there's not there's nobody out there who doesn't like 1917. Have you met anybody who said it wasn't good? No. You know what I mean? I, I, not I, a I think single that person. There is a there is there, it's and, just and one I actually of those think the what, what
0: you're saying also, too, even by Quentin's movies being too like I think Parasite's gonna turn off enough members of the Academy that See, it's not gonna win Best Director.
2: It, I had a very interesting uh, conversation the other day um, My anchor Steve sat down next to me uh, Before we did a segment um, The other day on Fox 5 And we're sitting down before the segment The segment's about to start We have a couple minutes before the break ends And he looks over to me and goes Dude, he goes, I watched Parasite this weekend And it was awesome Now Steve goes to the I'm movies. getting the same thing at work Steve really? goes to the movies wow.
1: Because everyone, all of the people we work with Are now getting their SAG screeners
2: Right. So okay. all the people
1: we work with are starting to watch it
2: Okay. So Steve goes to the movies twice a year. He, he barely goes to the movies. Big sports guy is not really a huge movie guy. And Parasite connected with him, which is interesting. One, it's foreign language. Two, subtitled, which we don't mind. But I mean, in regards to a standard audience goer. Sure, usually Parasite, kiss of death. But if Parasite is connecting to that audience, what does that mean? And it's it's an interesting thing. So and that's why I think Parasite really is that movie that like Parasite could be like the moonlight of this year, meaning that like it's the movie that mm-hmm. you don't think will win, but it, it it's strong enough where it could pop up and beat La La Land like Moonlight did or beat, you know, 1917. I don't know. It's interesting. We'll see.
1: Kevin, you talk a lot about the Argo year where you say that, you know, one of the reasons the Argo won Best Picture is because people felt bad that Affleck didn't get nominated for director. And I almost wonder if there's a bit of a similar thing going on with Parasite. Uh, There's that famous picture of the cast holding the L.A. Times that criticized the Academy for nominating Parasite for so many Oscars, but no acting ones. Uh, The the SAG, uh, the, 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 the people from Parasite were the only ones to get a standing ovation. Whenever they came out to introduce their film from the largest voting body of the Academy. I can't help but feel one that the Academy knows that they have an opportunity to make history right now and it wouldn't look so bad in a year in which they're criticized for not having a ton of diversity this year to give best picture to a foreign film. I don't think they're going to pass up the opportunity to, to make
2: history and also so you're yeah, thinking yeah, Mendez director, Parasite I think, picture? Yeah, I, I,
1: I think that they're also going to feel That's a little bit of sympathy about the fact that that none of the actors actually got nominated. So that maybe they do that Argo vote where they go ahead and give it best picture because they're like, ah, we kind of messed up somewhere else, too. So let's go ahead and give it this.
2: Here's and This uh, is going to sound really weird. I can, I can already see myself sitting on my couch Oscar night. And them opening up the envelope, and I can already hear 1917 coming out of their mouths. I, yeah. I just it, I just feel see, I
1: see, it, I hear it like, I feel I feel that way about Parasite. I can hear them, I can hear whoever it is. I, I'm picturing Julia Roberts because I always picture her saying green <laughs> book. But I picture Julia Roberts saying Parasite. I think it's Parasite picture, Mendez director.
2: It's you know, you know what's gonna be you know what's gonna be interesting is watching the mouth. Is it gonna go or is it going to go? <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? Is it going to be an end? Or it's yeah. So, be it's, a so,
1: so, yeah. The, the tongue is either going to touch the top of the mouth, or there's going to be a, like a pucker for the for the yeah. pee.
0: And here's the thing, too. Jake Jake is always a minute ahead of me, and so he'll text me the winner before I get to see it. You no, guarantee I, I, that that I, will happen. No,
1: I'll do that this Sunday for the Super Bowl, but I won't do, but I won't do it at the Oscars. Uh, I
0: want to point out too that you guys are are optimistic that the Academy is going to have this amazing breakthrough this year. Uh, and recognize diversity or problems that they had in the past, whereas last year they had the opportunity to give the best picture win to either Black Panther, uh, Spike Lee's Black K Klansman, Black Klansman.
1: It's Black <laughs> Klansman. Why do you call it dude, It's, it Black it's been a year and a half, man. How do you not have it's it? It's got an bun? extra K.
0: Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, the favorite, fine. Uh, Roma, brilliant. Star is Born, brilliant. Vice, yeah. challenging, I understand. And, uh, and what'd they go with? They,
1: they went Green, green,
2: green book. book. What if there's like a green big book. shocker and Irishman <laughs> wins? Like
1: seriously, I'd what be if okay Irishman... With that? I'd be really okay with Irishman winning. What if Irishman won nothing but best picture? <laughs> I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want
2: Irishman to win. I'd want to win yeah. over 1917. Though, well, Irishman doesn't want you to I win either. So. <laughs> all right, let's move all
0: right, on. All right. All right. Oh, no, wait, let's going. do this. Let's do this. On, on January 28th, Uh, Jake, what wins Best Picture? Parasite. Kevin.
2: 1917. I'm saying 1917 also. All right. Well, Sean, Sean, question for you real fast. Would you rather have, well, if you could pick. I tried, Gabe. One of those to win Best Picture. You know Jake and I will say Hollywood. What's the one you would personally want to, I know Irishman's your number one, but take that aside. Which movie would you rather see win Best Picture? Not because it's better or, or favorite. Which one would you rather in my, see?
0: In my ideal split, if there were a split, I would give Irishman picture in, in, a, in a season where it was winning more awards. I think it's dead in the water. But I would love to see Irishman take picture and Quentin get his director number. No, I, I would prefer Quentin have a director win I, than a picture win.
2: I'd be okay with that. I just want Quentin to yeah. win best picture once. That's all. Just once.
0: Just see, once. and I want him to win director. I, I think he, upon I think time he deserves to win then. director. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, this Sunday is the Super Bowl. And um, usually what happens is the studios bust out big trailers for upcoming movies. We wanted to just do a run through quickly of what we think might potentially. Now, have you guys I I haven't looked at all this week. Do you guys see any stories about studios that for sure have bought time?
1: Well, I I, I, don't know, but there are there
2: are studios that famously don't. I think I I don't think Disney does.
0: I don't think Disney would
2: have. One thing I was interested in in was the Fast and Furious trailer. I know nine the trailer is going to drop Friday, which I thought was interesting right. because I feel like with with the current state of way trailers are released. If I'm Fast and Furious, I would put out a teaser Friday to tease to the Super Bowl spot Sunday. Yeah, but it sounds well, so like they put
0: they put out a teaser today,
2: right? But <laughs> they now they're true, yeah, and they're going full full trailer on Friday, which I thought was really weird.
1: Um, I guarantee you we see, a, we see a Top Gun trailer. I guarantee you we see a Top Gun trailer. I, I
0: have Top Gun down here on a yeah, list. Yeah,
1: that, that's the Super Bowl audience, man. Um, will we get, I will we get Tenet? Maybe. I
2: no. don't know
0: about Tenet. I feel like Tenet's
2: I, too complicated for, for Super yeah. Bowl parties. No one doesn't, no one wouldn't, yeah.
0: A Bond movie in April seems to fit, yeah. right? Like yeah. a yeah. Bond Mulan? commercial could be there. Mulan? Yeah, maybe Mulan. I wondered about Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, if they you know, it, they're going Action-heavy one?
2: They're going to do Pixar's Onward, I bet.
0: The, oh, you think so? Okay. That's Only because on I too. feel like
2: that movie doesn't have a lot of at this moment traction, doesn't it? Open in March. It does, um, so does Mulan though? True, Mulan. Mulan I feel does like. Also. What, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll do thirty and thirty. I I don't know what they're gonna do. I I mean, for me and people who know me know this. I I don't watch the game for the game. I watch it for the commercials, and I always love to see what movie commercials they're gonna put out. Um, and we've had this discussion on the show before, and I'm just. Really tired of these companies putting out their ads during the week of the Super Bowl that are going to air during the Super Bowl. And I just find it like I, I just miss that tradition of finding them. Yeah, Bowl, but which, you understand why they do it though. I get why they do it. It's a business decision. I get it. I mean, I, I the good thing is I haven't seen any yet, thankfully. So I'm staying away oh, from that. Oh, you haven't that. seen the Brian Cranston one? No, I haven't seen any of the Super Bowl commercials. None of them. So I'm, I'm Even Mr. Peanut? No, I haven't seen any of them. No. Wait, I'm do you actually, know the whole Mr.
1: Peanut thing?
0: No, Kevin, the, I, uh, the, the Brian Cranston one is going to actually make you sad.
1: It's not good. It's going to really? make you so
0: sad. It's, it's going to make really, you so sad. It's really I, was,
1: I was listening in a It, it combines wait, two wait, of my wait. favorite things. Can we
0: tell him what happens in it? I, I want to tell him what happens in it. No, Just because
1: no, if, you, if you
2: tell him, it sounds awesome. On oh. paper, it sounds great, but it's oh, not. I,
0: I would argue that it even sounds bad on paper.
2: <laughs> Sean, give me the pitch. What's the, what's the pitch? It's okay.
0: Brian Cranston is remaking The Shining, uh, and he's the Jack Torrance character, but it's a Mountain Dew commercial.
2: No. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> see, on paper, that sounds cool to me. That sounds funny. Until you see two Brian
1: Cranstons dressed dressed up as the Grady
2: twins. Yeah. And that's when you just go, oh. Is there a Hair's Johnny moment? Do they go that far with it? No, please no. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did Flanagan direct it? No, because no, it would have been good if to get a director. <laughs> yes, it would have been. By the way, have you, uh, this is the complete non sequitur. But have either of you seen the director's cut of Doctor Sleep? I need. I no, need but I really want to. I really, want to. I really yeah.
1: want to. I've heard. It, I've heard it's great. It's like three yeah. hours, and I've heard it adds a, real, a lot of great stuff to oh, it. Oh, this yeah. is
0: really funny. Okay, so for whatever reason, I've been on Disney's mailing list for their DVDs and Blu-rays for like years. Like the whatever the latest DVD just comes to my house, it arrives, and I haven't told anybody, and it just keeps coming. As of two months ago, Warner Brothers titles start showing up in my same, house. <laughs> Dude,
2: same. same with you. Yeah, I just Ye- got we- like Warner.
1: I've been in Warner Brothers for years, man. That's one of the few that I get. Oh, oh yesterday,
2: yeah. yesterday I opened. I walked into my house. I had a Doctor Sleep Blu-ray. And it was like the director's yep. cut. I'm like, where did this and come from? You one? By this and there's one other, buy this one.
0: one other Warner Brothers one too that came. It was like two packages, and I had. I was like, what is the this? the Good Liar? That's what it was. Yes, and Jake's quote is on it. Him and Bill Condon. No, I'm only kidding. It's not on it. Well, what do you want? You're on the Tom Hanks one. JP, yeah. That's great. That's so exciting. Um, I'm looking ahead to things that might be trailers for Super Bowl, since that's what this segment started as. The Memorial Day weekend is Artemis Fowl and that um, irresistible political comedy where Steve Carell is coaching. Oh, the, uh, John,
1: the John Stewart movie. Yeah, the John Stewart movie.
0: Don't those seem like two odd <sighs> Memorial Day yeah.
1: titles? Yeah.
2: well, it's, it's, it, I'm not looking forward to this year. Is Memorial Day, like, what's been a big Memorial Day movie in the past? Like, is Memorial Day weekend it, normally a big mo- weekend movie? Yeah, the Pirates, well oh, Solo,
0: Solo yeah. was Memorial Day weekend. Well, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> July 4th is, uh, July 4th this year is Minions, The Rise of Gru, and that Free Guy movie with uh, Ryan Reynolds. Which and does not
1: look good. I bet, I, I bet we get a Black Widow trailer.
0: Okay, so I I watched the Free Guy trailer with PJ, who's actually a gamer, and he was yeah. like, "This looks dumb." Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, all right, you're I, you're the audience.
2: I'm I, I'm gonna give that movie the benefit of the doubt because I like Sean Levy, and I've, I I think mm-hmm. that he is an interesting filmmaker. I mean, obviously, I love what he did with Stranger Things, but yeah, I don't really know. It looks like Wreck-It Ralph for adults, but I don't know. It could be interesting. Is it R-rated or is it thirteen? Free Guy. I I think it's thirteen. Okay.
0: I, I, I'll try I'll and tra- double check. I'll try and double check while you guys transition into the into this next one because uh, Kevin and Jake, on behalf of the Sonic Junket, got to interview a legend. Uh, so tell us about sitting across from. Is this the first time both of you guys got Jim Carrey? No, I, no, got him? no. We both. Oh, had him you before. had him before. Okay, so uh, you guys got him for Sonic. I watched both of your interviews. You both had amazing questions, obviously, uh, but he really seemed willing to play. He was uh, in a really great mood and and cooperative and and going along with everything you guys were throwing at him. So what was it like sitting down with him for Sonic?
1: Yeah, well, well, Kevin and I spent a lot of time together, um, as we always do on these junkets, and we're sort of really talking about the significance of interviewing someone like him because um, I think for both of us, speaking on behalf of myself and Kevin, Jim Carrey was sort of one of the first movie stars that I wanted to see a movie because he was in it. Um, oh, you know, yeah, cause sure. I mean, we're talking, I was in that sweet spot, six, seven years old when Ace Ventura came out. And to me, there was nothing funnier than a man talking out of his butt. <laughs> um, so between, you know, and, and, and also keep in mind, you know, I, I, was obsessed with Batman. So then all of a sudden he's the Riddler. And then, you know, when the mask came out and dumb and dumber and liar, liar, I mean, we're talking like that th- there was not more of a prime spot, uh, to, to experience those movies than when you're like, you know, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Um, So, and I've interviewed him multiple times before, and he's one of those guys that uh, you're never, it's not quite the Robin Williams type where you're getting like a whiz bang pop, like, oh my God, where's this going to go? He genuinely is thoughtful. He thinks about the questions. He gives really nice, thoughtful answers, but it had been for me, God, probably eight years, almost a decade since I'd interviewed him that the Mr. Popper's penguins was the last time I'd gotten him. Um, I got in a couple he's of times. He kind of
0: stopped acting, though. Yeah, I mean, he, he's done he, a yeah. ton of stuff.
1: Yeah, he's doing the 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 Showtime series, Kidding, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, which if you if you haven't watched, it's actually it's super fascinating. It's a really fascinating show. Okay. Um, and uh, it, you know, it, it so Kevin and I um were in the hallway, the junket hallway together, sitting next to each other. Kevin was going to go first. I was going to go second. Um, whenever he showed up, and uh, just this you know he and I were Kevin and I were both wondering what's he going to be like today? What kind of mood is he going to be in? Is he going to be, is he going to be willing to play around? As silly as it sounds, is he going to be willing to take a picture? Is he willing to do this? Is he willing to do that? And all, and both of our questions kind of went two different directions based on what kind of vibe we were going to get out of him when we walked in the room. Luckily we were there when he walked down the hallway and Kevin and I, then we both look at each other and go, oh, he's in a good place.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The whole, the whole experience was interesting because Jake and I have been doing this together for a long time um and it was one of those weird coincidences where, where i won't name the hotel but we show up at the hotel and our rooms are conjoined when we first get there so i, and, I it ha- that happens yeah.
1: so much more often than you would think because we pulled a great prank on gabe and sean oh, when i tried right. to get them into my room for because ro- <laughs> i was course. like i have yeah. something to give you guys not better
0: than the prank in toronto though when i <laughs> walked into the room that's that was, still an all-timer.
2: That's one of the we greatest We'll never videos. tell
0: that story. Yeah, we'll never tell that story.
2: Um, but I, I, I'll, I'll tell you something funny. I, uh, <laughs> I know Jake so well. I Here's how well I know Jake. I, I Jake gets to the hotel like an hour before me. Uh, this is the day before the interview. and We're, we're going to go screen the film that night. And I'm walking into my room to check into my room, and I see a food cart outside of this room next to me. And I look at it, and I'm like, wait, that looks like a Jake Hamilton food cart. Cause it was like <laughs> half eaten mashed potatoes and steak. And I, I was like, that's, that's Hamilton for sure. So I call, I call the room next to me to see if it, and, and, and of course Jake answers. I had no idea he was in there. Thank God he answered. He's like, how'd you know I was in here? I was like, cause your food cart outside. So anyway, so Jake and I go see the movie. We get back. And one of the, one of the big things we were worried about was we've seen a lot of interviews with Jim Carrey where he, can be very serious he's not the same like Jim Carrey that he may have been in the 90s where he was more playful and more fun we were we were worried about tell
1: him about the one where he said how he doesn't want to take selfies with people
2: yeah there's like we watched the video so we were we both wanted to take a picture with Jim Carrey and I watched the video right before my interview a couple hours prior of him saying I don't want to take photos with fans like and we were like well, we definitely can't ask him now if he's saying that in an interview so we're, we're in the hallway like Jake said, and I go in first, he's unbelievable. Uh, What a nice guy. I I was, my approach, I was so fascinated to learn about his process. I've always wanted to know about the physicality of the roles he chooses, where they come from. Does the physicality come first? But specifically how he speaks so fast, how that dialogue comes out. Um, And one of the things that blew my mind was he told me he, he would hang words or sentences from the ceiling of the set and if it came into his viewpoint during the scene, it would it would take approach in the sequence. If it didn't come to an, into his viewpoint, it wouldn't end up in the scene. It was kind of a crazy, cool look into his process. Um, so I do the interview, I, and I have my ticket stubs, and I'm showing him, like, me, myself, and Irene, and Truman Show. And we get up and take a photo. And then right after I'm done, Jake walks in, and, like, Jim Carrey is, like, blown away that Jake and I are, like, great friends he's well, like because a-
1: whenever you were doing that they went ahead and, and brought me into the room to kind of like wait in the wings and so you were showing him the ticket stubs and you were taking the picture and he was having a great moment and so i was very much a like oh i don't want to ruin because they're like oh jake go ahead and go sit down and i was like no yeah. i don't want to ruin this moment and then at one point like jim kind of looks over to sort of say like hey man like hold on just a second let me let me do this and i sort of kind of went like no like please like like i because like, i didn't want to do- because it was such a sweet moment yeah. and to just sort of be in the wings watching this moment between Kevin and Jim Carrey was so great. And the last thing I wanted to do was barge in there and go, okay, it's my time. But and I think he sort of caught this moment, which is why I initially said what, I, what Kevin's yeah. going to say that I'm about to say, which was like, dude, like it's cool. Have that moment. I don't care because Kevin and I know each other.
2: Right, and it was it was cool. And so as I'm leaving, Jim Carrey starts talking to Jake as Jake's sitting down in his chair. For people who aren't aware, these, these press junkets, you have four minutes basically with these actors and, and it's just rotating in and out. And Jake and I get to go together sometimes, which is cool because then the actors get to experience, oh, and they, I feel like they're always impressed that there are two genuinely great friends doing this job. And I feel like, and, and I think at the end of Jake's interview, doesn't Jim Carrey... Five minutes later, say to you, It's cool you do this with your friend. That's what he said, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I walked in. That's why I was sort of like, Oh, dude, like that was that's totally cool. It's cool. I was like, He and I are best friends. I was like, I was in his wedding, and that he was kind of like, What? He goes, wait, wait, I'm sorry, wait, what? And we're like, Yeah, I was in his wedding, and it was a whole thing. And, and so at the end of my interview, as he goes to shake my hand, he goes, I think it's really nice that you get to do this with your friend.
2: Yeah, and so like, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up, but this is kind of interesting. So Jake and I were, before we went in the interview, we were nervous about the photo because we, we don't take photos in every interview we do, but like with someone like Jim Carrey, I just I really wanted to get a picture with Jim Carrey. I don't have a picture with Jim Carrey. And I just, you know, he's a a genuine hero, comedically, actor-wise of mine. So we are sitting there and he walks down the hallway, as Jake said, we gather he's in a really great mood. He's like, seems like he's smiling, he's happy. And then this Paramount Pictures publicist walks behind him and I say, excuse me, uh, and this is something that Jake and I like battle out sometimes. Like, do you ask before you go in? Do you not? I'm a ask? big believer
1: of ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Like, like right. it, not, I feel like 99 times out of a hundred, if you ask a publicist ahead of time, can I get a picture? They're just going to go ahead and say no.
2: But something so, in me, So I felt, always just do it in the moment. I felt the urge to ask her and it was weird because i was like uh, at first and, and i don't know if jake remembers this this is pretty funny i i say excuse me can i ask you a question and then i look at jake i'm like oh wait never mind and then she like lurks because yeah, i'm, I'm like, like
1: dude, dude, dude no, 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 like, no, no no no
2: no and then she comes back around she wait what did you really want to ask me i'm like oh well, i guess i have to ask it now do you mind if we ask jim carrey for a photo when we're done with our interview we, we know his time is limited she goes, oh no problem at all he's uh, he's totally cool with it i'm like and it just took the pressure off for me and i think for jake as well but here's the thing at the end of the day we are journalists we are doing an interview that's that, that's our job but there's 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 these moments sometimes where you have in a room when the camera's off that is just it's just very special like talking with jim carrey a little bit after the camera and before the interview was just kind of special to me it was a cool moment i thought so the the weird Um,
1: part was at the end of my interview when he goes where the hell is sean o'connell and i go you're just not important enough to him yeah Yeah.
0: as sean o'connell didn't get invited to that job actually uh we got to go cinema blend got to go you can watch it and also plug plug where you guys can see where people can see the interviews guys you can see Uh, cinema blends on on our youtube page and you guys both have them posted on your youtube
1: page yeah youtube jake the movie guy is my youtube channel
2: and mine's just YouTube, Fox Fox 5 DC. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're into, like, if you want to check it out, it's cool. I, it was just a special moment for us. I just, the reason we told the story on the show is because Jake and I were just, we had the moment together, so it was kind of a special thing. And we, I remember awesome. Jake, and I, Jake and I took a cab to the airport together, and we kept looking at each other going, man, how cool was that? Like, we, we Jake and I stop a lot and remind ourselves where we are, what we're doing, and we try to be present in it and go, dude, could you imagine telling your 12-year-old self that's watching the mask that this is happening. It's crazy.
0: Well, not that I'm scorekeeping, but I get to do something fun with Jake um, in two days. Jake, he's coming all the way to London, uh, and the two of us are doing the Birds of Prey Junket uh, with Margot Robbie and the entire cast, although we're doing it on different days. Jake's going to do the International Day, so we're going to have one day of overlap. uh, One party of overlap. Yeah, which includes a really fun party that they're doing, like, a roller derby type thing, Um, and I'm totally going to skate. Are
1: you going to skate? this? Is Did the you know about this? Of the, no, I, I don't. I don't think I have the capacity
2: to skate. What kind of skates? Is it the two and two or is it the four in line?
1: Uh,
0: I think it's the two and two. E- cool. E- I hope it's a two and two.
2: E- Are those the ones with the brakes on the front where you have to like, you have to bend your yeah. foot forward to break? It makes no oh, sense. Yes. Oh, totally. God. It looks
0: like another wheel. It's another wheel that's hanging out Ooh. there. And what I am absolutely going to fall and hurt myself, by the way. I'm calling that right now. But see, you will have already something. done
1: your interviews. If I knock my teeth out and then I have to go hang out with Margot Robbie, then right. we've got some problems. She would uh,
0: she'd appreciate your commitment to the bit, though. She yep. would appreciate your effort. Uh, uh, my, my bosses ship- would not. So we will come back. Oh, and we're going to have a um, uh, well, wait. Uh, we're going to have a guest. I'm going to say we're going to have a guest from Birds of Prey. Uh, I can't say who just yet because Gabe's right. Things fall apart um, all the time. But we're hoping to have a guest on next week's episode uh, from Birds of Prey. And you guys can stay tuned for that. So anyway, this week in movies. Uh, This is a fun segment where we each week like to go through um, and talk about movies that Gabe has made up that none of us have seen before. um, But we try to pretend that we um, are going to give them reviews. One is apparently called Gretel and Hansel,
1: which um, I actually think the trailer looks really cool.
0: That's a girl from it. Yeah. Sophia, Sophia Lillis. Yeah. She's going to do the horror. She's a screen queen girl now. Anyone seen it? Nothing. Gretel and Hansel.
2: I don't even know if they right. screened it in this Chicago. Is, uh, this is the segment every week that I'm just feel ashamed <laughs> of myself. I feel genuinely no. ashamed of myself that I haven't seen everything. <laughs>
0: The only other well, I don't think they've screened. Yeah, I think Jake's right. They haven't screened that one, but they did screen the rhythm section because as you guys heard earlier in the show, we talked to Reed Morano and uh, Kevin's going to see it tonight after we record. Um, I was able to see it in order to do the interview. And I wanted to tell you guys that it's it's not at all what you are expecting. Um, I thought it was a bit of a vengeance thriller where Blake Lively uh, loses her family in a plane accident. And this is not spoilery. This is all trailer uh, talk. I'm not going to give it any of the details away. Um, And that she wants to go after the people who are responsible for it. And so it is there's a revenge element to it, but it is far grittier uh, and bleak than I thought Blake Lively was willing to go. And she does a tremendous job of playing this very difficult character, uh, Stephanie, who's dealing with overwhelming grief of the fact that that. She was, um, the family was supposed to be on a different plane and they switched her, her, their reservation because of her. She ends up not going and then they die in a plane crash and she carries the guilt of, uh, of that. And she gets approached at some point uh, on this spiral that she's in uh, to potentially pull herself out of it and train with a guy played by Jude Law, who's also gonna help her sort of figure out who is responsible for it. Reed Morano, uh, which we talked about in the interview, does some amazing handheld work that's super intense, way up close in people's faces uh, to the point where there are a number of times where the material is so heavy that I just wanted the movie to like step back and give me a wide shot for <laughs> a minute just so I could breathe. But it really creates this this great tension. Um, I-, I liked it. I was, again, not what I was expecting at all. The the characters end up being at a place where they could uh, continue the story. And I know the author who did the screen adaptation, has a couple of the stories in this uh, series. So if this is the beginning of a franchise, I would I would definitely follow along with it. And it's produced by Barbara Broccoli, who is uh, one of the uh, co-producers for the entire Bond series. So obviously Blake Lively is in really good hands.
2: Sean, when you were doing your research for Reed, um, did you happen to come across the interview where she talked about Blake Lively's favorite movie featuring Jim Brewer? Did you did you did you hear this anywhere? I, don't know, I was just curious if you heard about this anywhere. Blake
0: Lively's
2: favorite, favorite movie favorite
0: movie the features
2: Jim Brewer.
0: <laughs> the only Brewer movie I know is is that pot comedy. What's the name? Half Blake
2: half blaked yeah there we go come on come on half blaked that works that works i like you know so funny i'm getting called out a lot in my
1: interview during the sonic junket with james marsden he talks about uh doing puns a lot and i say oh i love a good pun and everyone in the comment section i guess it goes jake you lied you lied you said you love a good pun you're a liar and i go no I love a good pun. I just don't hear them very often on the show.
0: Well, I also uh, am going to point out as we transition into uh, the blend game this week where we did hashtag final line blend that the one that I was really going to take for the longest time was uh, the final line for Silence of the Lambs.
2: Where Anthony Hopkins
0: says, uh, I'm going to have a friend for dinner. Yeah, and I just couldn't pick it because it's a pun. (laughs) It's such a it's such a play on words, but it's really it's it's clever. But solely because it's a pun, if that were Kevin,
1: imagine like that that very tense moment, and Kevin is Hannibal Lecter, and he says it, (laughs) and then just like slowly looks at the camera and smiles, and and then run and then runs down that alley. Was he like in Argentina or something? He's like running down the alley of Argentina. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: well Kevin I've been told that you get to go first for uh, this week's blend game hashtag final line blend
2: I I, this was an interesting one I was texting Gabe earlier because I had three different lines um, that I was thinking about using Um, one of them was the end of usual suspects because I just thought that was such an incredible line but it's funny like if I'm thinking about the idea of a last line and me remembering it one being the last line of the movie and two remembering the line itself i think that that's what plays into i think what if the line was memorable um there's lots of movies that have great uh, last lines like seven there's so many phenomenal last lines that keep you thinking after the film but i think the line at the end of inglorious bastards when he says i think this might be my masterpiece uh is truly like my favorite line because one the first time I heard that line, sorry if I'm butchering it a little bit, but uh, essentially Brad Pitt looking into the looking into the camera as he's doing what he's doing with his knife onto Christoph Waltz. Uh, I always found that line to be Quentin Tarantino looking into the audience and saying, "This is my masterpiece." Um, and what's I, I'm I'm kind of bummed that I didn't ask him about this when we when we sat down with him, but he is we very, didn't have
0: enough time we didn't have enough time <laughs> so he's we only such got,
2: a, he questions him, dude he's such a big fan of that movie uh so much so that in our interview if you haven't heard it you can go back he talks about the opening of bastards being the greatest thing he's ever written in his own mind i just part of me like do you think there's any is there any doubt that that line is not a commentary on the movie itself to us or, oh, is, is, I mean, is that, is that time, me reading into it? Or,
0: you know, at the time, I think he probably thinks that or thought that. Yeah.
2: I just wondered, Like, I, I just always thought that was an interesting decision, um, especially uh, a character looking into the camera the way he is and saying what he's saying. It, it, it is an interesting line. Um, that clearly means, could mean multiple things. It could mean what he's referring to in regards to the storyline with Christoph Waltz. But I just. For me, when Brad Pitt says it, I hear Quentin Tarantino saying that line, mm-hmm. and I feel like, for me, as looking at last lines, that's the last line that I remember the most. So when it comes down to favorite, I mean, I'm sure there are better lines out there that maybe speak more to the themes and the, and and the thematics of the film and what, and how the movie's gonna continue on possibly in other storylines. But I just always found it to be a striking ending. And it was like, and it didn't take me out of the movie because it was so perfectly executed that you could look at it as Quentin saying that. So to me, that's my favorite final line I think I've seen in a movie.
0: Um, was Bastards the script of his that got stolen? Didn't That's have Hateful, a, eight. Oh, that hateful, hateful eight. eight. Oh, that was Hateful Eight. Okay, gotcha. Um, Jakey, you're up next.
1: Uh, my favorite last line and this was one of those situations I feel like I say this a lot and I feel like we do it a lot where the second that you announced what the next week's real blend was going to be I thought ooh I bet my answer is this and then I thought well let me go check and see the others and then I just went right back to what my original thought was um, which is Ernest Hemingway once wrote hmm. the world is a fine place and worth fighting for I agree with the second part yes. I just feel like that one it's the only moment of voiceover in that entire film and it just, I mean, like, where do you go from that moment in seven? Right. I mean, that is such just a soul-crushing, heartbreaking moment. I mean, not only does the bad guy win, but the good guy loses. Like, he, the good guy really freaking loses. I mean, like, Brad's eyes at the end of that sequence. I mean, that man is destroyed. He will never be the same for the rest of his, of, for the rest of his days. And that quote it's because it not just sums up just the world in which they're living in because remember that that city is never named that city itself makes no sense because it's this really uh n- gritty new york looking city somehow completely surrounded by desert so that so the mm-hmm. whole world they're living in really makes no sense but it also i mean there have been so many moments just honestly within our country over the last 10-15 years where i found that quote is entirely applicable so mm-hmm. it's, it's a, for me, a quote that transcends, um, I, I think of that quote every time there's a, a mass shooting in this country, every time there's some unspeakable trauma or tragedy or travesty that happens in this world. I, I just think about that quote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part because, because it, right. it is also that idea of like world's really shitty sometimes, but you still can't give up hope. You you can't roll over and because and, sometimes the bad guy is gonna win, but you gotta keep fighting. You gotta keep pushing. So it so yes, it is a massively somber ending to that movie. But that last quote is sort of like, yes, I know the bad guy just won, but we gotta keep pushing forward.
2: Yeah, it's a great line. And by the way, I, I did get the exact line. I think this just might be my masterpiece. Just want to get it out there correctly. Mm-hmm. Apologies, but yes.
0: I'm I'm looking up Andrew Kevin Walker who wrote Seven to see what else he wrote. Well, he, he followed
1: wrote, up with his sequel, Eight Millimeter. He did 8mm, which is actually like a really messed up movie. 8
0: millimeter really
2: is really dark, yeah.
0: He did Sleepy Hollow for Tim Burton, uh, two short yeah. films, and then The Wolfman, which, was that the one with Benicio Del did Toro? Benicio Del Toro, yeah. Oh my gosh. All right, well, yeah, 7 is his masterpiece. To go back to Tarantino, I think 7 is that dude's masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um, after Jake's uh, bleak, the bad guy wins ending, I'm going with uh, the one that... Sort of jumped right to my mind, and can think, I, guess? I guess?
1: Can I guess? Oh, can I guess. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, mean, go ahead. I think it's. I think it's roads where we're going. We don't need. I Rhodes. was going back to the future. Yeah, I was going to say that too.
0: You're both incorrect. That's ah. Incorrect. Uh, I'm going with. Uh, I'll be right here. Uh, oh, Et. Oh,
1: great Et pointing one. at Elliot. Oh. Uh
0: I cry every single time I get to the ending of that movie. It is uh, so beautifully conducted, and it's so like we've talked about this on the podcast too that Spielberg sometimes struggles with endings. uh, And even in his best films, you know, they they just don't find the way to to always stick the landing and it might be brilliant all the way up to to a certain point. E.T. is his best ending uh, by far. I actually think, the the more I think about it, I think E.T. is my favorite Spielberg film too. I probably even said that on the podcast. That ending gets me all the time. And the thing about it too is that E.T. doesn't really form sentences. He repeats everything. You know, he repeats Elliot he repeats Phone Home. Once they figure it out. But that's him like conveying a message to this boy, you know, who's both of their lives are forever changed and uh, and they space it out perfectly. It's paced beautifully. Uh, it is an emotional wallop uh, of, a, of an ending to a movie that uh, plays with your heartstrings the entire time through because Spielberg got amazing performances from kid actors who are when 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 used properly, the most authentic people uh, because they're generally not acting necessarily they're reacting uh with all of their honesty yeah, that's what because he shot
1: in chronological order right he
0: did yep and to the point where you know poor drew barrymore was a hot mess because of all the things that happened to et and spielberg didn't necessarily want to you know tell her the truth about things that were happening with the alien so uh yeah him coming back of course it follows the bike ride in front of the moon and and then uh et taken off and god that's that's my favorite last line
2: did you happen to Kevin, hear the interview with spielberg about um E.T.'s I was favorite- so
0: emotional. I, I gave know, such but a beautiful...
2: This will help you, though. This will help you through that. <laughs> E.T. E- 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 put out his um, his list of favorite movies from each year. Oh, did uh, he? Does he have yeah, a blog? For, he has a huge blog. It's amazing. Um, and do you know E.T.'s <laughs> e- favorite movie from the year 2002?
0: <laughs> no, I have no idea what it is, Kevin.
2: E.T. phone booth home. Jesus Christ! Thank you. I love
1: Kevin's reactions to both Jesus of our heartfelt Jesus answers. Like I give this huge like eulogy about like the Jesus ending and having hope, and Kevin goes, "Let me correct my quote really quick." Hold on. <laughs> and then Sean gives this beautiful, poignant, like like a soliloquy about ET, and he goes, "I got a pun."
2: ET phone, e. phone booth home. Thank you. Even
1: Colin Farrell hates
2: that pun, Kevin. Yeah, he does. He just texted me. He said, "Dude, what the hell's wrong um, with you?"
0: By the way, I have to weigh in on The Gentleman uh, because I was late to the party. You guys reviewed it last week. Colin Farrell in The Gentleman is ideal. <laughs> he is so great in that movie. See, I,
1: I, and I, I do. I, he is great. But I, to me, that movie belongs to Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant Hugh is Grant. amazing yeah. in that.
0: I'm going to argue that I don't love the framing story of of Hugh Grant. Oh, telling I love
1: the, that. I love him breaking in the house and telling the story. Hmm. I don't know. I didn't love that as a
0: device, but I love Colin Farrell in it. When Colin Farrell gives him four at the end, and he's like four, now <laughs> that he's had to yeah. do that. Yeah.
1: All right. So wait, really quick. Wait, what? Like really quick. What did you think of the movie?
0: Uh, I liked it. It's a lot of fun. It I, it's funny. It, I, I, we were going through, and I was enjoying it. I liked it. I liked it. But in the last twenty minutes, and again, I won't give any details. When it all finally gets explained and it clicks, then I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is really great. Like it, it got better once because it's a lot of double cross and miscommunication. And is Hugh Grant telling the truth? And how much does Charlie Hunnam already know what he's being told and how far ahead of him is he? And uh, weirdly, I, I thought McConaughey was miscast.
1: Oh, I don't really. Yeah. As, as, that, oh, I'm sorry. You thought Matthew McConaughey was miscast as a Texas man who smokes weed? No 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 maybe that's what the problem is I just didn't I didn't
0: buy that character in that world I I don't understand why that character had to be American and I thought like making him American and making him Matthew McConaughey was just odd I would have liked I just would have preferred another Brit who might have just fit the mold If anything It it was
1: just a little too Matthew McConaughey for sure, one hundred percent. I get that. I get that. Um, so, but
0: but but a good return to form for Guy Ritchie. I I, I, f-
1: I almost felt like I was wondering actually to your point. Whenever I saw the movie, I, I remember thinking, did you specifically write the character to be American just so you could potentially get any big American actor?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Because otherwise, you can't sell it on uh, the rest of the stuff. That's, John, that's definitely not on Charlie up. Hunnam. Yeah. Back, no. No. No.
2: Back no. to your uh, blend game picks for two seconds. Um, Sean and G- uh, and and Jake, did you both pick? a final blend line from your favorite movie of that director? I think you did, right? Because Jake, your favorite yeah. Fincher movie is yeah, Seven. Yeah, Seven's my favorite Fincher movie, yeah.
1: Well, then,
0: yeah, that's my favorite that's my favorite Spielberg. Yeah, I'm definitely going to say that that's my favorite Spielberg.
2: That's, I was just curious. That's was an that in- interesting connection, I thought.
1: That's, mm-hmm. um, that's one, and I know you know there was that transition where we went from best to favorite when it comes to the blends. I, I, there are a few big ones I wouldn't mind redoing under the guise of favorites, and Spielberg's one of them. That's fine. We can go back and, and redo them. No one's paying attention to the show.
2: What? A, what about the usual suspects <laughs> line though? We got to mention that, right? Oh, that was that. That's probably in my top five. I mean, just that the the delivery of that line is just yeah incredible. And I also, that was just, it's it's yeah.
1: the the final two lines. But I always love the ending of Jaws. I I've always hated oh, the yeah. water. I can't imagine why.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, what does he
1: say? What is they're it? Sw- they're swimming away, and Roy Scheider says. You know, I've always hated the water, and and uh, and 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 Dreyfus says I can't imagine why. It's
0: pretty funny. Um, Kevin, have you heard? Oh, Jesus
2: Christ! Guy
0: Ritchie's favorite Matthew McConaughey movie. This is why they wanted. This is basically why he wanted to work together with him.
2: Guy Ritchie's favorite Matthew McConaughey film.
0: I'm going to go on record and let everybody know that this doesn't work, but I'm going to force it. Uh, this is basically the reason so they're going
2: to blend in with all the
1: other puns on this show.
0: <laughs> the reason why they wanted to work together. Oh, he really, he really loved him in how to lose a man from uncle in 10 days. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that's, but that's good. It's guy. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, should matter. Like, it should
1: be like, like, <laughs> like who is Matthew McConaughey's favorite director? How to lose a guy. Richie in 10 days. Oh, God damn it, That's the better joke.
2: That is I'm sorry, just to so clarify,
1: did everyone hear that pun? I just want to make <laughs> to sure everyone actually guy- heard it. Before we just move on and completely ignore it, I just want to make sure everyone heard that goddamn pun.
2: <laughs> How to lose a guy,
0: Richie, in 10 days. I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, ask that's, Madonna. That's terrific. Uh, yeah, that's true, very true. All right, audience picks. Michael Kamens and others, uh, a lot of others, went with the Back to the Future uh roads where we're going we don't need that
1: we had a a great audience picks with this that's a great one um
0: anna louise pulled uh butch cassidy and sundance kid Uh, for a minute there i thought we were in trouble that's a really great line uh a perv gadam also went with my ets i'll be right here and i swear i didn't see that beforehand um So those are our audience. A lot. I saw a lot of people went with Back to the Future. Um, Again, a lot of participation and thank you to everybody who plays along on social media. You can follow us at Real Blend and play along with uh, the hashtag game. So for next week, you're going to reach out on Twitter using, we're going to go back uh, and play a variation of the Decades game where most recently we went through and we picked our favorite movie from the different decades. This time going through We're going to pick the most underrated film from each of those decades.
2: Oh!
0: A film that is uh, your favorite uh, underrated movie of the decade. So it's a movie that just doesn't get the attention that it probably deserves. And so that's how you're going to have to make the argument then. A film that you think is really great, but not enough people are on board with it. So you're going to have to work pretty hard to do this. Yeah,
2: Jay could use Solo.
0: Yeah. Well, sure. When we get to... uh, yeah. 2000 and whatever, yeah, solo. And I'm sure.
1: sure I will have quit this goddamn podcast by then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh We're all picking Not Another Teen movie when we get to uh the 90s. That movie's a it. masterpiece. I actually really
1: like that movie. <laughs> no, it's fantastic, yeah. I really like that movie. And, and here's the deal. Like, the scary movies have aged poorly, but right. I think Not Another Teen movie holds up very well. Oh, Jake fantastic. is in yes. my
2: phone as Jakey, Jakey, Big Mistakey because of Not Another Teen Movie. I, I was telling Kevin's this, I was t- not
1: in my phone at all because he won't right. stop saying
2: that. Right. <laughs> I was telling Gabe this, We at, at some point on our show, I would love for us to like go through an underrated film like that and like talk about it for an entire episode, like just in the sense of like, Not Another Teen Movie is one of the most underrated comedies ever. And people need to see it because I think what Jake just said about the scary movies it got put into that spoof category, and it's way better. It's one of the best scripts. It's so funny. Very funny.
0: It's very, very funny. All right, well, we're not going to start with the 90s. We're going to start with the 70s. So use hashtag underrated 70s blend. Godfather. Um, um, <laughs> no, that doesn't count. doesn't count. Doesn't uh, count. T- send us your pick via email at com. Of course, play along on social media as well, too. Use the hashtag and uh, tell us what you think. And also try to describe in 200 and whatever characters uh, why you think the movie is underrated. That's the case. That's the thing. You, not only are you are making a pick, but you have to make a case as to why this movie is underrated as well, too. So I can't wait to hear from you guys. So this week's review comes from someone named Beatrix Kid. That's a oh. nice little shout out. Uh, calls this true cinema lovers. There's no hiding the passion for cinema these guys have. Always excited to see a new podcast appear. And I understand why so many A-list directors want to chat with them. Keep it up, boys. Probably my favorite movie podcast. All right. That's probably, but probably. Yeah. What's why, why are you waffling here? Beatrix kid? I mean, we had, we had Tarantino on for two hours and I would assume that you're a big fan of him. So, uh, why don't you tip us over the fence to, uh, definitely your favorite movie podcast. And then, uh, then we'll talk. Um, Keep the reviews coming. Thank you very much for for all the things that you guys are sending in to us. You can send them to the email, like I mentioned, realblend.com. You can go to the Apple iTunes and leave us um, a review there as well too. And there's a very good chance... That we will read it on the show uh, at the end of each episode. Kevin, you had something you want to throw in.
2: I just wanted to apologize to Jake and you for railroading your picks. <laughs> I, I, I'm so ADD. Like, like right after I butchered the line from the movie, I was like, I have to correct that because someone's going to call me out. So, like, I get so distracted sometimes. So, that I, it, it, it was not with in bad intentions i just was just like super distracted by my mess up so i apologize
0: um before we go uh the three of us definitely wanted to mention the the tragic passing this week of kobe bryant um just the surprise that that hit all of us when this happened it's we immediately jumped into our text chain uh we're we're news hounds as well too and that was a huge story that we were immediately uh tuning into like everybody else as well too obviously kobe was huge in the world of basketball but his talents really transcended into other fields and he did cross over into our world. If you haven't yet seen it, uh, do us a favor, go take a few minutes, check out his Oscar winning short film. It's called Dear Basketball. Uh, It's a really beautiful tribute to uh, the sport that obviously gave him his career, uh, powered him through his whole life. But I think what we saw with him winning an Oscar uh, is that he had so much more to offer as well too, beyond basketball. And uh, if you have any interest in sport, if you have any interest in in basketball specifically, that that short is really fantastic and uh, and I understand. understand why um, he won the Oscar that year. So we will see you all next week. We're going to leave you with a bittersweet Dunkirk. Tune in next week. We'll be back with you guys soon.
2: Dunkirk.
1: This is the story of the one as head of maintenance at
0: a concert hall. He knows the show must always go on.